Part of the reason why I became a lawyer was to help people. We would go to the Tampa courts and we would watch the proceedings. So I have this legal issue and this is my first time in court. Can I ask you a question? Can you look over my paperwork for me? The look on his face said, the system does not work for us. Court Buddy was an accidental business. I create all this great art, but someone else owns it. You're going at Mach 5 speed when you have venture dollars. When you hear that, the first thing you think, this is impossible for me. There's no way I can raise any money. The odds are stacked against me. Hearing those types of things, it was like, did you guys even go through the due diligence? I mean, why are we even here? 90 plus percent of the, the people that are writing the checks don't look like me. So it was a challenge, but it was a challenge that we accepted. We didn't make any excuses. I'm in the trenches too. The question is, what are you gonna do about it? So that's the mentality that I had going into these meetings. Hey, what's up, Unfound Nation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was James Jones, co-founder and CEO of OwnOrs, an AI-driven fintech platform that helps artists retrieve payouts from streaming services. OwnOrs isn't James' first startup. Inspired by his upbringing, James became an attorney, but he saw the huge gaps in the system. The fundamental way that legal services are sold and distributed is a straight-up disconnect with the vast majority of people who need it. So he and his wife formed Court Buddy. After successfully fundraising and scaling that business, James was eager to scratch the startup itch again. Leveraging his legal experience and personal passion for music, he set out to solve a different inefficiency he saw. Creators being paid equitably and timely for their music. And so, Honors was born. James has a great story. You'll want to listen in. Our episode is sponsored by Black VC, a focused community built for and by Black investors. Check out a link in the show notes for more about their exceptional programs and events. And if you've ever thought about getting into venture, you definitely want to connect up at blackvc.com. That's B-L-C-K-V-C dot com. And please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. We are available anywhere you get your podcasts, even YouTube. And if you like what you hear, drop us a five-star review on Apple or Podchaser.com. And make sure to tell your friends about us. Who knows? Maybe they'll subscribe too. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is the latest episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have James Jones, co-founder and CEO of OwnOrs, an AI-driven fintech platform that helps artists retrieve payouts from streaming services and provides micro-advances to cover payout gaps. Welcome to the show, James. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm, I'm excited about being here today and talking to you and, and also the audience. Terrific. So let's just start quickly with what is OwnOrs exactly? So yeah, OwnOrs is a platform that helps independent artists that are doing anywhere between 10,000 
monthly streams all the way up to about 250,000 monthly streams with understanding their analytics, analytics being how they're streaming across different platforms. And these are platforms such as Spotify and, and YouTube. We also help them retrieve their payouts from these streaming services, as well as providing them with micro advances. And the micro advances are designed to help them boost their streaming numbers or to cover the gaps between when they initially start streaming their songs all the way up until when they start to receive payments for or royalties from those songs. So we're a platform that's designed to help artists think about themselves as businesses, as opposed to just artists that are putting out, whether it's music or video or portfolios, if they're into modeling or acting, uh, highlight reels. So instead of just being the talent, they start thinking about themselves as, as a business and we provide the tools for them to do that. That's awesome. And I think it's such a intelligent approach. Everybody talks about how easy it is to be a creator or an influencer, but there's this nagging thing of how do we make money and when do we get paid? And those things are so critical to especially emerging people who are artistic. So I think it's really cool. And we're going to delve more into the business in a little while. But first, we want to hear a little bit more about James Jones Jr. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I, I'm currently in LA and Onors is, is headquartered here in LA. But I'm actually from the East Coast. Well, I was born born in Richmond, Virginia, grew up between Virginia and North Carolina. My father was, I call him a traveling musician. So we spent a lot of time up and down the East Coast. He was essentially stopping at different churches. Um, he had a company of his own. He's not just a computer engineer, but he's also a musician. And he went to different churches to teach music to anyone that was interested in, in learning how to how to play keyboards or instruments. So we spent a lot of time on the road, and this was between Washington, D.C., all the way down to, to Florida. And because we were on the road so much, and because my father's background, um, he has six college degrees and just a really, really smart guy, engineer. He has a degree in philosophy and theology and all of these different, I call them the hard, the tough fields, right? Those are the fields that, you know, requires a certain level of intelligence to essentially do well in and thrive in. And so we spent a lot of time, uh, I spent a lot of time, I should say, watching him struggle from a business standpoint, struggle to, to sell his music. I had an opportunity to listen to his music. All of it was created by him. I watched him build keyboards. I've watched him build speakers. I mean, that's the engineering side of him. So I had a really upfront opportunity to watch my father essentially navigate the challenges of being essentially a one-man band, right? In terms of teaching music, selling music, and running a business too. So we spent a lot of time on the road. I also lived in, in Florida, Tampa, Florida, for a number of years. And I bring that up because that was another moment in my life where I had an opportunity to get up close and personal with the justice system. During the summertime, my mom and dad and my brother and sister, it was, a, it was a family of five, we would go to court, go to the Tampa courts, and we would watch the proceedings is the best way to describe it. And at the time, I didn't know the difference between criminal versus civil court. But in hindsight, it was criminal court because there was a defendant that was brought into the courtroom. And sometimes they had handcuffs on, sometimes they didn't. There was a judge. A lot of cases, the defendants did not have attorneys and there was a prosecutor. So either they had a public defender or they didn't have an attorney at all, but there was always a prosecutor there. And so there's this one memory that really stands out to me. And it was 
a black man. He was probably in his early 30s or so. And I was around, just to give you a time reference, I was, I was or age reference, I was about seven or eight. And so they bring him in into the court. He has handcuffs on. He kind of glances back at where we are. So if you think about like a courtroom there where the judge sits, there's a plaintiff and defendant desk, there's a jury box, juror box, and then there are benches behind there. And the benches are where we sat as just observers of what was happening. And so he kind of glanced at us and he takes his seat. The judge says, all rise. And you know everyone stands up. And apparently he had been accused of assaulting and battering. He was at this bar and he had, I guess, swung and hit another patron at the bar. And so... What happened was he was charged with assault, battery, and some other different things. And the prosecutor just essentially went and tried to get him convicted on every charge. And the judge essentially agreed with him. And I don't think the defendant said any word or had an opportunity. I think he may have had an opportunity to say a word, but he may have just declined to say anything. And again, this is me at seven or eight years old. So this is me trying to process everything that's happening. And so all of a sudden, the judge makes his ruling. The bailiff has taken him back to, I guess, his holding cell or something. And he looks at us and the look on his face said, the system does not work for us. He didn't say that, but that's what his face said. And again, I'm seven or eight years old. And from that point on, I had like almost an infatuation with trying to help out people. People that I thought were either unjustly served or didn't have an opportunity to to do something with their lives, right? And again, this wasn't something that he said. It was just something that I felt strongly about because of what I what I witnessed. How did your parents decide to bring you to court? I mean, did you have relatives that were going through something or anybody that you knew or you were just going to learn and observe? My parents were always interested in making sure that their children had well-rounded exposure. Another part of my father's background is that he was a correctional officer at one of the toughest prisons in the world. Well, in the country at the time, it was called the Lorden Facilities. He actually wrote his thesis for his doctoral degree on his experiences trying to to get these really tough inmates, trying to get them to find a way to change their life, right? And so he used music. He used his Christianity. He's a strong believer in Christ. And my uncles and aunts and my grandmas on my dad's side, they are all the same way. And so he wanted to figure out ways to to transform or convert the inmates into a better life and following a better path. And that was the path of Christ. And so I think a part of it was he was always into even beyond that period in his life when he did that. I think he was always into the justice system. And so he took us probably because he wanted us to, number one, stay out of trouble, but he also wanted us to have a lot of exposure to different types of career paths and different types of people and and the things that they're going through. I don't think it was anything that was happening within our family or any relatives that would warrant us going to court. I just think it was my father naturally wanted us to to learn from him and, or to, to learn from the system and learn what to do and what not to do. And one more thing I'll add to that experience. I was fascinated by lawyers at that point. I became very, very fascinated with lawyers. And I mentioned that because the lawyer in that particular scenario seemed to have a commanding knowledge of 
all sorts of statutes and rules and regulations and case law. And that was fascinating to me because it wasn't like the lawyer had a book. It wasn't like the lawyer had, you know, these statues and was reading from a paper. It was all memory. No cell phone. No cell phone. This was, you know, the 80s. So yeah, no, no, no cell phones or anything like that. Yeah. So it was just a fascinating experience. What a gift from your parents that you said it was a natural inclination for your father. I don't think most parents think that way. Let me put my family into these situations where they can really appreciate some of the nuances you're talking about. Yep. You ended up becoming a lawyer. So this probably had some impact on that. Tell us about that journey. How did you become a lawyer? Part of the reason why I became a lawyer was to help people. This experience certainly catapulted me to the dream of becoming a lawyer. I've always been an analytical person. I've always been pretty observant. Anyone that you speak with that was around me as as a child or even as a young adult will tell you that I was a man of, or I was a, a boy at the time, a boy of a few words. I only spoke when it was time to say something meaningful. And I just spent a lot of time observing, analyzing. My friends used to always tell me like, you're like still waters that run deep. You're not really saying a lot. Your eyes may say certain things, but when you do talk, it's so deep. So you're like still waters that run deep, right? So fast forward to my my high school years, my parents had just gotten a divorce. And prior to that, I was super A student. I was taking all these great algebra and trigonometry, all these different courses and everything and excelling in them. And I was offered an opportunity. Now, this is North Carolina, so I'll just uh, say that. But I was offered an opportunity because I had done so well in math to go to the North Carolina School of Science and Math. And the reason why I did not do that is because I wanted to play sports. And my mom had just gone through a divorce. She was worried about me as the oldest son not being around and, you know, something happening because being at the North Carolina School of Science and Math, you had to stay on campus too. It was like a campus. So it was kind of like you're in college before you start college, right? So I ended up not going there, but because of a teenager trying to learn, going through puberty and everything else that teenagers go through. On top of that, dealing with my mom and the divorce and seeing those proceedings play out because I'm the oldest and uh, you know having to answer certain questions and that uncomfortable period where you have to listen to what your father's saying, what your mom is saying. And so anyway, the point is my grades slipped. Not a lot, but I started focusing on other things and sports came into play. And so I actually played a lot of different sports. It, was, it allowed me to get my mind off of what was happening. And you know, I played football, basketball, ran track ran cross country, played baseball, and excelled at it. I remember I'd be in class, and especially like the, the math classes or science classes. And again, like I said, when I do speak, you know, everyone's like, oh, James is going to say something, you know. So at the time, it was, I would say something, and they would say, well, you ever thought about being a doctor or a lawyer? And it's very rare, especially with, with unfortunately, with Black kids, that, you know, you have teachers that'll push you into those types of careers, right? I think my, I read I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and he talked about how a teacher said that he should be a carpenter because he was good with his hands. Not that he should be an intellectual, not that he should be a thinker or a writer, but he should be a carpenter. So it was very rare for teachers to push black kids and push me into that direction. And I was opposed to it. I was like, nope, you're not gonna tell me which way, how I'm going to live my life and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. So that was the rebellious 
James coming out at that period of time. But ultimately they proved right. I mean, I ended up becoming a lawyer. I went to college at Winston-Salem State University, which is a uh, HBCU. Did a lot of things in college. I was the editor of my campus newspaper. I played football for a year, my, my freshman year. And, you know, I graduated with 4.0. I was student of the year. I was able to essentially recover from that hiccup that I experienced in high school. Maybe it wasn't a hiccup. Maybe it's the thing that gives you the resilience. Sometimes it's those seasons of trial and challenge, right, that make us eat stronger and we grow to be better prepared. So maybe, maybe that was the, it's all part of the journey, right? It's all part of the journey. Exactly. Exactly. It's all part of the journey. I remember when I was in college, I spent a lot of time speaking to my professors. I also, in addition to doing that, I had this job in a computer lab. And this job actually came about because of my, just a, a casual conversation I had with, with a professor. He essentially said, look, if you're bored with school, I have a job here at the computer lab on campus. Why don't you try your hand at that? And so at first I was kind of reluctant to it, to do it. Ultimately, I decided to do it. And it was a great experience because I naturally gravitated towards computers. And this was a job that required me to fix computers. And, you know, there were a bunch of students coming into the computer labs to do different things on the computers. And so if they had any issues, I would fix them. And whether it's opening up uh, an application or, or whatever issue they had, I was able to fix it. And this was around the time where you had peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, like Napster and LimeWire and uh, a few others that I'm, I'm, I'm missing. I think WinMix was another one. and all of a sudden, as I'm in the computer lab, I'm hearing students say stuff like, man, I can't get this new album that's coming out. And most of the students lived on campus. And so it was a pain for them to leave campus because most had to do public transportation to leave campus. And it took an hour to get to the mall, right? Which was it, driving, it was probably about 30, 20, 30 minutes from, from the campus, but it was a pain nevertheless, right? And so I overheard students say, well, I just went to the mall and the mall is called Haynes Mall. And I tried to get the CD and I'm probably dating myself now, but they were trying to get the CD and they couldn't get it. And so at first I was like, oh, that's just one person. And then I kept hearing it over and over and over again. And so I had a friend that worked at Circuit City. I would go to Circuit City and I would get these cases of like, they're like blank CDs. And so I just casually had a, overheard a student say, complaining again about an album not being ready or being sold out. And I said, hey, why don't I just, can I get that album for you? And he's just like, sure. I ended up switching from second shift to third shift. So this is midnight to 8 a.m. in the computer lab where it's mostly empty. And because it's mostly empty and because we're doing updates on the computer, I was able to start taking these CDs and every student that had a certain type of song or album that they wanted, I was able to get it for them. And so you're talking about 40 computers times two or three CDs per eight hour shift. And I'm charging them $5. I'm like, look, you know, I'll do this for $5 for you. I'll have it to you in the morning. That's the entrepreneurial side that started. There's a point to this story. The entrepreneurial side of me started developing at that point. I remember at one point I did the math and I said, I am getting paid $10 an hour for eight hours. So that's $80 for working in a computer lab. I am taking 40 computers and I am burning two to three CDs per computer and I'm making $5. I am 5X and 10Xing the amount of money that I'm making working this job. And that forever changed me. And so 
one of the things that I learned doing the CDs was that the $5 is $5, right? And then you can pay taxes after that. It's not you pay the taxes first and then someone gives you $3. It's, you know, you have $5 in your pocket and then you can pay the taxes. So the point is, those are things that kind of shape my thinking about entrepreneurship, the importance of understanding taxes, understanding employee versus versus investor versus having a business, right? Those are some of the early early learnings that I was fortunate to learn from. I love it. You can see the kernels of the entrepreneurial journey beginning there. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with James Jones from Onors. Hi, this is Jean-Claude from Black VC. We're a community created to connect, engage, empower, and advance Black venture investors. And the best part is, we're built for and by Black venture investors. In these unprecedented times, our mission has become clearer than ever. Black founders and investors are underrepresented and undercapitalized in the startup ecosystem. If you're an investor, an entrepreneur, or aspiring to be either one, Black VC is working hard to help you find the community and the resources that you need to further your journey. To learn more about the events and the programs that we run, follow us on Twitter at BlackVC, that's B-L-C-K-V-C, or visit us on our website at BlackVC.com, that's B-L-C-K-V-C.com. Yep, you heard that correctly. No A. At BlackVC, we believe that we are the change that we see, and together, we're stronger. We hope that you'll join us. So we're back with James. So James, I'm hearing a lot about some of the key attributes of a great entrepreneur, intellectual curiosity that seems to be unsatisfied, but this rational common sense approach of how making books and ledgers match up and where's the opportunity for upside. So all the things that prepare you to be an entrepreneur for sure, or at least the natural the natural attributes that you want to see. We know that Onors is not your first entrepreneurial journey. And your first company was Court Buddy. And we could do a whole episode on Court Buddy. But tell us a little bit about that journey, how that got started, and and how you transitioned to the current business. So I went to law school at the University of Florida. And when I was there, I did pro bono work. Pro bono means, you know, just free free legal services for the local community in Gainesville. And my first job out of law school was with a with a firm in West Palm Beach. And then from there, I went to a firm in Miami before I started my own firm. Each step along the way, I met people that were representing themselves. They represented themselves not because they didn't have the money to hire a lawyer. They represented themselves because either A, they thought the fees were just way too high, or B, they respected the fees, but they just weren't going to pay it anyway. And part of the reason they reason as to why they weren't going to pay it was because even if they did not win the case, they still had to pay those fees. So it's like, where's the win-win for me, right? Should it be a situation where if you don't win, then you don't get paid or another type of scenario, but it's to them, it just didn't seem fair. The only exception was plaintiff's work. So this is these are like the personal injury cases where the recovery or the fees are contingent upon the lawyer successfully obtaining some type of judgment or a settlement on behalf of the client, right? So those are pretty clear cut for clients. But for other types of cases that were non-contingency cases, it was more of a 
of a steeper hill to climb in terms of getting clients to understand why they should be paying for something that may or may not work out for them. And this is, again, law school thinking as well as being a lawyer. The thinking was, if I bring on new clients, they have to sign a retainer. They have to pay me X amount of dollars before I do any of the work. And so in between West Palm Beach and Miami, I spent a lot of time in court. I represented Fortune 500 companies and for different types of cases, whether it's a, a slip and fall personal injury defense or crew member case of, of seamen that you know were injured on the ship. I represented, for the audience to know, I represented Royal Caribbean and Norwegian and Carnival Cruise Lines. And, and so there were like all these different cases that were coming in and it required me to be in court a lot. The way that the court system works is each judge across the country has a motion calendar. And these motion calendars have about 20 or 30 cases where the judge has to make a ruling. These are five minute motions. So the judge has to essentially say, yes, you know, I, I, I grant what you're seeking or I deny it. And here are the reasons why. Of course, the judge can't hear every single case at the same time. And so there's a docket. It's called a docket where there's like a list of different cases. And so the bailiff calls your case up. And before that happens, there's an area where everyone's just kind of waiting. And so as a lawyer, I'm looking over my notes, I'm getting prepared for the hearing. I've been in front of this judge before, so I'm thinking about how to make the arguments to the judge, how to approach this judge. And I start getting people asking me, hey, sir, are you a lawyer? Sure, yeah, I'm a lawyer. So I have this legal issue and this is my first time in court. And can I ask you a question? Can you look over my paperwork for me? And so, you know, I, I'm a very sociable person. I would say, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll take a look at your paperwork. In every case, or almost every case, it was a nightmare scenario for the client. They were about to get their children taken away from them. They were about to get a financial judgment against them. They were about to lose their property, their homes. And more often than not, it was because of a, just a technicality. It wasn't the merits of the case. It was just a technicality. Like they forgot to file something or they failed to do something. And so I would tell them, like, you're about to go in front of this judge and you're about to lose property. You're about to lose your children. You're about to lose your home. Why didn't you just hire a lawyer? I mean, this is just a technical thing that you're about to you're about to lose on. And again, that response was, look, I can't pay three hundred fifty dollars an hour for a lawyer. I can't pay $5,000 for a retainer. Then the next question would be, but sir, can I give you $200 to go in front of this judge right now and represent me just for this one motion? Sorry, I can't do that. I have my own case, number one. But number two, you have to come to my office and you have to sign a retainer and you have to pay me X amount of dollars per hour. So essentially, I was telling them the same thing that they were probably hearing from other lawyers. But then the entrepreneurial side of me kicked in and I said, wow, like I'm hearing a lot of this. I'm hearing a lot of people come up to me and say that, look, I'll just pay you 300 bucks. I'll pay you 400 bucks just to go in front of the judge right now. This is where my wife comes into the picture. We created Court Buddy as a husband and wife team. So she was working at an ad agency. This was in South Florida. So we were, she was working at an, at an ad agency and she spends a lot of time in the IT department. And so I kept asking her, like, is there something that I can do about this? Because I have hundreds of people coming up to me every time I go to court. And they're saying, look, I need this done. I need that done. And I can pay you a hundred bucks. I can pay you 200 bucks. At the same time, my colleagues, either lawyers that I went to law school with or people that I've met along the journey were always complaining about not having clients. 
And I'm like, look, I just left like five people at the courthouse that were like willing to pay me $500 to go in front of a judge. And you can't find one. And so my wife was thinking at the time, she comes from the advertising and marketing background. Well, why don't we just, I have a bunch of developers that I speak to all the time in the IT department at my agency. Why don't we try to brainstorm ways to figure out this problem? The next thing you know, we said, why don't we create a marketplace? And the marketplace will just be local. We'll just start off in Miami, Dade County, and we'll try to help as many people as we can get connected with court appearance attorneys that I know are looking for work because they tell me all the time that they're looking for work, that they don't have enough clients that will pay them. And that essentially was how Court Buddy was born. We tinkered with a few things literally in our house. You know, we have old pictures of like the table that we laid out all these different sketches and drawings on and, and we just made it work. We spoke to a lot of lawyers. I was able to go to lunch with a lot of lawyers. And I signed them up. My wife, Christina, she was able to go to her ad agency and ask, hey, you know, would you use this? Can you use this? And even if that person couldn't use it directly, they knew someone that could, right? And so next thing you know, it's, it's just like those days where I was burning CDs. It was like, you know, you have people telling each other, telling other people. That's how corporate got started. And it's a great story. Like I said, we could do a whole separate episode on on Court Buddy. It's an amazing journey. You you end up building this business, and you and Christina raise money and hit Silicon Valley. And I think you were Entrepreneur of the Year at one point. But at some point, you decide to figure out what's next or to pursue what's next. So tell us maybe a little bit about how that transitioned into owners. You know, Steve Jobs has this great quote about connecting the dots between your past and using that to figure out your future. You know, one of the things that I tell people is that Court Buddy was an accidental business. It was something that we were just trying to figure out ways to solve, almost almost like a way of saying, quit nagging me personally, right? Stop asking me. Here's a place where you can go so that you can pay $200 for a court appearance attorney, right? There's only so much that I can do. I'm, I'm in court for a reason. And my reason is to help out this client that has retained me to achieve a certain outcome. That was the accidental business that kind of came out of that, right? So trying to solve a problem. And in this case, it was a painkiller for for a lot of people. And we ended up going national with it. We got to a point where this wasn't the last stop on our journey, right? So also as a lawyer, I represented athletes, some Hall of Famers now, they're, they're Hall of Fame athletes. I represented record labels, I rec- represented artists and restaurants and, and lounges. And so that was the more appealing part of the business for me because I was able to see all sorts of interesting behavior and interesting characters during that time. There's nothing like getting confidential communications from clients and them disclosing things where you're just like, whoa, I would never do that. But you're not being judgmental. In my lifetime, I can't, I wouldn't do that, but I'm here to represent you and I'm not passing judgment. So let's just get through this issue, right? So anyway, the point is that experience taught me a lot about the business as it pertains to creators. There were a lot of creators that were, and we're talking about in some cases, really from the outside looking in, really successful artists, right? Mega stars. We're talking about artists that by every stretch of the imagination is successful and however you want to, want to define that. But behind the curtain in my office where they can disclose and be who they are and provide confidential information, it was a different story. There was a lot of fear. 
There was a lot of, I don't feel like I'm in control of my brand. I don't feel like I'm in control of my life. I'm doing X, Y, and Z because I'm trying to cope with the pain. I mean, so there was a lot of that happening. There were a lot of tears. There were a lot of crying on, on shoulders. And I wanted to figure out ways to help creators, right? Maintain an understanding of the business side of things or to get a grasp of the business side of things of the entertainment business, but also to help them control their ownership, right? And get a hold of their ownership of their art. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the conversations were around, well, I have kids now and my kids will one day have grandkids and I create all this great art, but someone else owns it, right? And so the name Ownors actually comes from Own Yours. It's a play on words. It's like, we wanted to make sure that artists owned their masters and catalog and publishing because that's one of their tickets to generational wealth. They just happen to have a talent that fans love, that people around the world, or if it's a local artist, the local artist, the local community loves that talent. And so what happens after that talent either goes or the artist is no longer, unfortunately, with us, right? How are their kids protected? How are their grandkids protected? We see this with Henry Ford. We see this with Rockefeller. We see this with Warren Buffett, Bill Gates. Like, they figure out ways to impact the world either from a philanthropic standpoint or leaving something for their kids. And so it's, of course, even more sensitive to me because I'm well aware of the challenges that the Black community faces in terms of generational wealth and being able to leave things for kids and, and their grandkids. So owners actually came about from reading the tea leaves when it comes to the industry and also surrounding myself with smart people within the industry that also had the mindset of this needs to change, right? We need to shift the ownership. We need to, we need to provide artists with the tools and resources to think about themselves as a business, as opposed to putting out music and then seeing what happens beyond that. That was how the business came about. With respect to going back to Court Buddy for a second, we felt like we had grown the business to a point and it hired great leaders to the point where we didn't have to be involved in the day-to-day and the management of the business. The business is venture-backed. So when you're venture-backed, everything is accelerated. It's like you're pouring jet fuel into an engine. You're going at Mach 5 speed when you have venture dollars. And that's what's happening at owners right now. We have venture dollars in the company. And so everything is going at Mach 5 speed. And you have to be a certain type of founder to appreciate that and to want that. And so you know, we've been fortunate to to do it across multiple companies. But the reason for stepping out from Court Buddy was, okay, this was an accidental business for us anyway. We have great leaders in place. We have great investors in a lot of cases. And so we can confidently move on to our next ventures. You know, my wife, who I tell her all the time, I'm like, I know I kind of strung you along and brought you into, into Court Buddy. And I, I certainly appreciate you being there, but I, I know that you want to do other things. So she wanted to write a children's book. She wanted to help out children that were experiencing grief. So she not only wrote that children's book, she also created a company called Guardian Lane that actually provides video content and digital tools for children that are going through a grieving process, right? By helping them overcome that from a mental standpoint, a psychological standpoint. So yeah, th- these are things that we wanted to do. So we essentially got back to, we never lost sight of 
always wanted to create value for people and solve problems, but we just wanted to do it with, with new ventures. And so that's what we did. Pretty amazing, actually. You know, it's almost like being at the top of your game and as an athlete or something and you walk away. But I understand this desire to figure out ways to, to additionally help out and make an impact. So t- tell us a little bit about owners from a technical perspective. So I, I know there's a analytical AI aspect to the business. Maybe tell us a little bit, how does that work? How does that help impact this ability to the tracking and the payments? Tell us a little bit about how it works. We help artists you know, essentially figure out all aspects of their business, which is, which is their art, which is their, their craft, right? So the way that works is the artists connect all of their streaming accounts onto our platform. We then provide similar to if you were to look up a company on the stock exchange and you can see like how the stock has performed over the last year, over the last six months, over the, over the last week, over the last day, over the last hour, we do that similarly for the artists and we provide graphs and analytics so they're able to track how they're doing from a financial standpoint, how, how their music is doing. And then we provide recommendations. So the AI ML comes in where based on their numbers, we can say you should be receiving X amount of an advance. You could receive this if you, if you wanted it. You should be receiving X amount of payouts on a monthly basis or, you know, six month basis. And the other part is if you wanted to speak to someone in the industry that can help you figure out how to write a commercially appealable hook, that can help you figure out the marketing aspects or the promoting of your music or your, your artwork, then we recommend you speak to these folks. And, and these are industry heavyweights. These are A&Rs from major record labels. These are our founders and, and co-founders and CEOs of record labels, publishing companies, sync licensing companies. So. If you needed an extra resource, a human resource to help you navigate some of the challenges that you're facing in your business, then the AI would recommend that you speak to these people. So that's the way the way the product works. We launched actually during the pandemic. We founded the company, I guess, in early 2020. And then we spent about half of 2020 just building out the product and talking to different artists, uh, different creators, and learning from them understanding what their pain points were. I had my personal experiences as a lawyer, you know, speaking to different artists. I understood, I had a somewhat of a understanding of what artists need and what their desires and fears were, but I still was humble enough to put together a team where we focused on still learning from artists and listening to what they had to say and and what their pain points were and what kept them up at night. So that's something that we focused hard on. We didn't want to just create something that we put out there and said, okay, is this a vitamin for people? Is this you know, a painkiller? It was more important for us to learn as much as we could from the artist's standpoint in terms of what they needed. So there were a few things that some of our assumptions were validated because of those discussions with artists. Others weren't. I'll give you an example. We had artists that wanted to control their, their destiny by owning their masters and catalog, right? So that was pretty much the overwhelming majority. But then there were some artists that were like, I'm not interested in, in talking to or getting signed, for example. I'm not really interested in getting signed to a label. So that was one part of, of what we did early on. We wanted to help artists figure out how to get signed by a record label. But that assumption turned out to be an incorrect ex- assumption because a lot of artists wanted to be independent. They just wanted to maintain their independence, but also have a lot of the 
the advantages, I guess, to that comes with signing with the label, such as airplay and, you know, those advances. So that was one assumption that proved to be off for us. And so the point is we spent a lot of time just doing a bunch of learning. And then in November of last year, we we launched and we have been just we've we've taken off ever since. We had some early investors from from our previous venture from Corp Buddy that joined and, and invested. And then from there it was we're talking about two different spaces. We're talking about legal tech versus entertainment tech and AI and so and also the fintech component too. So you're not gonna have the same investors. You just have some investors that are like, well, I know you and I know your track record. So I'm going to invest because of you, right? And so we were able to to raise money and hire some great people. And we've been off and running ever since. I love it. So we're going to take another short break and hear more about Onors and James. So we'll be right back with James Jones from Onors. Hi, this is Jean-Claude from Black VC. We're a community created to connect, engage, empower, and advance Black venture investors. And the best part is we're built for and by Black venture investors. In these unprecedented times, our mission has become clearer than ever. Black founders and investors are underrepresented and undercapitalized in the startup ecosystem. If you're an investor, an entrepreneur, or aspiring to be either one, Black VC is working hard to help you find the community and the resources that you need to further your journey. To learn more about the events and the programs that we run, follow us on Twitter at BlackVC, that's B-L-C-K-V-C, or visit us on our website at BlackVC.com, that's B-L-C-K-V-C.com. Yep, you heard that correctly, no A. At BlackVC, we believe that we are the change that we see, and together, we're stronger. We hope that you'll join us. So we're back with James from Onors. You've talked a lot about fundraising and you've done quite a bit of it. Maybe you can share a little bit about your perspective as a Black founder, specifically maybe about that journey. What have you learned? What challenges have you faced in raising money? The challenges are, to put it lightly, they are enormous. One thing about me is whenever someone presents me with a bunch of statistics, and the statistics are by all stretches of the imagination, they're you know almost like doomsday, right? And because we're talking about fundraising now, I'll just throw this, this statistic out. Less than 2% of startups receive any type of venture funding. So we're talking about 2% out of the entire entrepreneurial ecosystem. What's even worse is the amount of investment that Black founders get or Brown founders get, Black and Brown founders. It's like 0.002% or something like that. And so when you hear that, the first thing you think, and this is just a natural thought that you would, that you would have is, this is impossible for me, right? There's no way I can raise any money. The odds are stacked against me. But I've always been of the opinion, and, and if you talk to anyone, they'll tell you this. My father even told me, he was like, you're almost like a dumb optimist. You believe that in any scenario, you're going to come out on top. Maybe he's right. Maybe in some cases I have been, you know, ignorance is bliss or whatever you want to call it. But in this case, when I heard those statistics, I said, the hell with them, essentially. (laughs) I am going to figure out a way to defy those odds. I mean, at, at the time, it wasn't me thinking like, you know, I want to do this across different startups, but that's what has happened now, right? I, I've been able to defy the odds across different startups. So that was the backdrop that went into fundraising, right? And so we actually had a pretty bad experience with the first group of investors. They were like an angel group 
in South Florida. When I say a bad experience, we pitched the, the, the bigger group. They wanted to talk to us about the business. And so we set up another call or another in-person meeting and they were supposedly doing due diligence on the company. And I kept hearing, this won't sell. We had sales. Hearing those types of things, it was like, did you guys even go through the due diligence? I mean, materials that we submitted, why are we even here? Ultimately, they, they didn't invest. We didn't expect them to invest. But the stories got better. I mean, we, we ended up getting investment from a number of great firms, uh, starting with Find Your Startups. They were our first institutional VC that put outside capital into the company. And this is a uh, court buddy. But the fundraising process was a huge challenge. There's no doubt in my mind that a large part of it was because of race. And the reason why I say that is because when you're in conversations and people, they make comments like, well, I, you seem to be competent enough. Now, keep in mind, this is a company that we created that's growing. We're scaling. We have revenue. We have customers. We have active users. All the different metrics that investors should be checking, you know, it's almost like, sure, you have that, but you're black. I call it the rebuttable presumption, right? This is a law school term, but essentially what I tell founders is that if you're black and brown, there's a presumption that you don't know what you're doing. Even if you created a company and it's going well, there's still a presumption that, eh, you know, but maybe you got lucky, right? So it's like the presumption is that you don't know what you're doing. And we're not talking about black people or Latin people creating these rebuttable presumptions, right? We're talking about other people creating these rebuttable presumptions. If you're white, there are presumptions that you do know what you're doing. And the rebuttable part comes in where someone can say, well, now you've just proven that you don't know what you're doing. So, you know, the presumption now goes out the door. And so when you think about that, you're not starting off on equal footing, right? If you if the presumption that you don't know what you're doing and you can prove that you do know what you're doing, you're starting off at a disadvantage than someone that is, there's a presumption that they do know what they're doing and then they can prove that they don't. That's how fundraising works. I think the other thing is when you know 90 plus percent of the, the people that are writing the checks don't look like me and they're writing checks to people that look like their son or daughter, then you're also starting off on the wrong foot. That's the challenge that you face. You have to get creative with how you fundraise. You know, that's what we did. We just got really creative. We ended up focusing on lead investors, investors that believed in diversity before it was cool to believe in diversity. We navigated it. But there were meetings where I remember there was this VC that in the middle of me pitching, and my wife was there too, he just got up and washed his hands. He had shaken our hands and he got up and washed them as if to say, like, you know, I feel dirty for touching you that we were in where the VC was not talking about the merits of the business. He was talking about how I was a man of large size, so I needed to de-escalate the room. And so, <laughs> again, this has nothing to do with the merits of the business. This was all about wow your race and what you need to do and what you cannot do. And the list goes on and on. I remember being in a board meeting. There was an investor, a black investor that wanted to invest, and we had already raised you know, several rounds of funding. And so this particular board member was like, why do you want to take money from a Mexican? We were like, wait, what? He, he's First of all, he's a very highly respected venture capitalist that happens to be black. And you got that wrong. You called him a Mexican. It's like, what is going on here? right? And so that's what I mean by, and th this is not to complain. This is not to cast a bad light on VC or investments or you know the fundraising process, but it's me essentially telling you that that's the reality. That's what we had to deal with. And there are many more stories. 
But again, you have to defy the odds. So for us, it was like, yes, that exists. There was a book that Michael Jordan wrote, or it was a book about Michael Jordan, the Air Jordan phenomenon. I think this was like the 92 or 93 Bulls team. It may, be, it may have been even an earlier year. They were doing their battles with the, the, the Detroit Pistons. And so they had called a timeout. And in the huddle, all the players are just complaining. Man, they're not playing fair. They're fouling, fouling us. They're, they're, you know, they're punching us. They're kicking us. And Jordan essentially looked at everyone and said, yeah, they're doing it to me too. I'm out there with you guys. I'm in the trenches too. The question is, what are you going to do about it? So that's the mentality that I had going into these meetings. It was like, yes, you're not from San Francisco. You, you know, you don't know the landscape. These investors, they invest in certain types of people and they invest in people that look like them. You don't look like them. They're, they're saying these things about you. It's, it has nothing to do with the merits of your business. Okay, so what are you going to do about it, right? And so that's the mentality that I had. I will say that fundraising for owners has been a lot easier. It still has been ex extremely difficult, but it's been a lot easier now. But I think part of the reason is because I have a network now. I don't have to go through those hurdles of like hearing someone say, yes, we know it's July 1st, but I can't meet with you until December. And you're like, well, why is that? Well, because uh, I got all this other stuff. I mean, just all these different excuses, right? Now what I hear is, okay, today is July 1st. Can we meet on Monday? How about the weekend? So that's, that's what I'm hearing now. It's, it's a different scenario, a different story. But the fact that founders have to go through that BS, have to, to navigate that when all they want to do is focus on building a business and bringing on potential value-add investors to help them grow into a multi-billion dollar company like we're building at owners, right? The fact that you have to go through those crazy steps, it's almost like hazing, right? It's like you're, you're going through all these different things. What's the end result? Is the end result to show everyone that you're now a member of this Greek organization. That's what it feels like. It's like you're going through this whole hazing period. And I'm not sure if it, it may make you a better founder because it puts like some battle scars on you and it helps you understand how the process works, how the fundraising process works. It makes you, certainly makes you tougher because it's an emotional roller coaster. And this is probably cliche, but it's like, you know, nothing worth having comes easy, right? You have to put in that work. I think it says a lot about you when you're able to not just do it once, but do it several times across different startups, right? And go through the fundraising process and come out on top and have great investors that can help propel your company. So it was a challenge, but it was a challenge that we accepted. We didn't make any excuses. We sort of knew what we were getting into when, we came, when it came to the types of pushback or uproar, or, or maybe not uproar, but the pushback and the, uh, the, the challenges that we were going to face as founders. But you figure it out. Very inspirational. So we've come to the end of our time, James. So just quickly, we always leave a call to action to our audience. Is there ways that we can be helpful to owners and maybe also just share ways to get a hold of you or your social handles or your URL so people know how to get a hold of you? Sure. At Twitter, it's at owners, O-W-N-O-R-S. On Instagram, it's owners, Inc., O-W-N-O-R-S-I-N-C. Those are probably the best ways to, to get in touch with us. And we're looking forward to getting feedback from you and hopefully having conversations with you as well. Awesome. Well, thanks again, James. We're super appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We'd like to thank our guest, James Jones, and our sponsor, Black VC. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Kihanya. Audio editing and production by We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts 
or simply go to foundersunfound forward slash listen to. That's listen, T-O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.